1: The fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. No mai hoki mai ki a tōtou. nei, Duncan Greve talking wha. My guest today is Todd Niall, uh, and you know I'm, I'm, not, I'm not well enough, but I am kind of emotional thinking about it. This. Todd is a he is the the sort of Auckland reporter for for stuff, but before that, and, and has been brilliant, uh, you know, really agenda setting, and you know he has has a real kind of sense of history and scope, and and knows exactly how to to do that really difficult job in a way that almost no one else does. But before that, he spent thirty three years at, at RNZ, a good chunk of it reporting on Auckland for Morning Report. So for a particular generation of people who grew up listening to that show, this was the guy who told them what was happening in the city. Um, you know, and he talks in this podcast about you know the amalgamation of, uh, of the various, just you know, sort of. Yeah, like the district councils into the into the super city uh, and you know for example the the Lynn Brown era and and the sort of scandal that ultimately uh, broke his political career um but you know like so so that it's just he's just a person who you know he he uh, Came out of journalism school in 1977 into the Auckland Star and has has sort of seen all of these eras of of journalism and we we sort of talk through all that but um and and about the, the some of the characters that he's encountered particularly Wayne Brown with whom he has it it's not an antagonistic relationship because you, you'll hear Todd, Todd is perhaps the most. The, the least antagonistic person you could ever imagine. Mild mannered to an almost comical degree when you think about what the personality on the other side of it is. But but Wayne Brown certainly has got a problem with Todd Nile, doesn't give him interviews, uh, sort of briefs the opposition and not him. You know, All of the classic Wayne Brown playbook that we've come to to know, it, it's really extreme um, when it comes to, to Todd Nile. And um, so we, we sort of we drill into that. but but largely this is a, this is about his career, about changes in journalism, about his time at RNZ and also why he ultimately left there. I think it's a it's a really you know, fun, interesting, reflective chat. And uh, yeah, we, we with Todd's last day at stuff, the whole of journalism is a little bit poorer because that kind of lifelong, dedicated, Beat reporter with a huge sort of contact book and and a very a particular approach. It's just much harder to do nowadays. Um, even if people had the sort of aptitude and the the will for it, the newsrooms just get chopped and and you know people get moved around far more than they used to. And so this is on on some level a love letter to the beat reporter and uh, and hopefully will be instructive on the value of that. Uh, so yeah this is Todd Nile from Stuff on the Fold. Denakwe Todd Nile, welcome to the fold. Morning. I wondered if you could start, I mean it's it's such a privilege to have you on on your on your last day in this this trade to which you've given so much. But I wondered if we could go go back to the very start of your time in journalism and then sort of talk about how you came to fix on Auckland as a
0: place that you thought you'd like to cover. I came into journalism through what was then called ATI, now AUT, the Auckland Technical Institute. It was in 1977, and they had a certificate of journalism course, um, $180, 18 weeks, uh, was pretty focused, you know, shorthand typing, basics of story writing, couple of field trips, um, and out you went into Employment, and and I went from there into the Auckland Star, the evening paper in Auckland, uh, as a cadet, um, doing the things that cadets do—the shipping column and what have you. How how
1: how big was the Auckland Star at the time? What kind of a, describe the newsroom as you found it?
0: Oh, it was. You know, a big open plan. It was a big, noisy, busy place. This is the seven, you know, the rows of journalists down each side of the building. There was sort of a long island down the middle. Across one end was where all the sub editors and those people uh, worked from. There was a semi soundproof room in one corner where the great teleprinter machines uh, chatted away all day, you know, bringing in news from around the world. Um, and, of course, this is the era of the typewriter. So there's, you know, dozens of typewriters going. There's old-fashioned telephones ringing. Um, pretty exciting kind of environment for a young journalist to be in.
1: How, roughly how many people would have been on on the newsroom floor like, or working as journalists at that 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 time?
0: Oh, uh, I'm just – I'd have to do a mental picture and try and count. I mean, there'd at least be dozens, yeah. know, more than dozens, including, the, you know, the bench of – sub-editors who did everything from the front page to feature sections and that kind of work, you know, sports, art, you know, there was an, an an editor for what was that NZPA who would take, you know, the copy from that newsroom and sort out what should be syndicated around to other newspapers around the country.
1: It's just a window into a, a very different and and in a lot of ways more sort of vibrant, uh, competitive news environment to the one which we operate today. And I guess, you know, we'll probably touch on some of that path. Uh, what, what about Auckland? How, how long did it take you to sort of wind your way to going, actually, this place And uh, is something that I'm going to spend a lot of time, a lot of my career scrutinising?
0: So Auckland wasn't a deliberate choice. I mean, I am a born and bred Aucklander. As a kid, you know, we travelled around a bit, had a few years in Palmerston North, Wanui Amata, back to Auckland again. Um, so Auckland just was my home. You know, that's where I did my journalism training. I got into, you know, the big daily newspaper, the Auckland Star. And in those days, Auckland was not, in terms of local government, what it is now. There were just dozens of boroughs. There was Auckland City Council and the boroughs were everywhere.
1: We're right next to the Mount City Council. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. Mount
0: Albert Borough, Onehunga, Glen Eden, Howick, Newmarket, you, you name it. And so council reporting was was much more of a staple then I suppose for newsrooms and so you know I started getting involved with those boroughs mostly as the more senior people did the big the big end of town the Auckland City Council and the Auckland Regional Authority um and so I don't know Auckland it was probably decades before Auckland became a specialty if you like uh, again as I as I worked through my years I've worked in other other centers and did, Local government reporting in those, um, Hamilton, Palmerston North, a stint or two in Wellington. Um, So I got quite interested in that decision-making process in city councils. And and eventually when I came back to Auckland, you know, for a reasonably continuous stint, um, I spent more time doing council stuff there and kind of got into, you know, the big decisions and the issues that, that would go across the council table.
1: I mean, it's a sort of a, a, a truism which is obviously much more complex than, you know the, than the statement might suggest. But but there is this idea that local government uh, is not interesting to people and that it therefore is not well covered enough. And as someone who has you know, spent a lot of your career there, what why why do you think that is, or, or, or what's the sort of counter to that?
0: Yeah, I kind of feel that that's sort of a misconception in that people are really interested in this stuff that local government does, um, but perhaps not local government itself. For example, you know, so, what, what do people talk about in Auckland? Housing, transport, the, the bus system, the bus is late, what's happening with the trains? Um, why is housing so unaffordable? And part of that is due to planning. Decisions of the past and being addressed by planning decisions now. So, I guess a lot of people don't necessarily see local government itself as being something that's interesting, but I think that's up to us. Um, people do get really excited about transport stories, for example, cycleways. You know, they're a passionate for and against, and all of these really are the domain of local government. So, yeah, I, I think it's probably got a bad rap local government I agree
1: I agree I, but do you do you think because it's it's interesting like to, to me the press gallery is probably the the last almost properly resourced uh beat in in New Zealand where you have a lot of people it feels like the big stories get hit that there's there's significant competition uh and therefore the characters and stories feel very kind of national and urgent, almost to the point of sucking up oxygen that could be usefully deployed elsewhere. Do, do you feel like local government were it to have, you know, there, there are, you know, yourself, Bernard Orsman, Simon Wilson, it's not like it's an empty by any means, but there isn't, you know, if you had the the volume or even of a, a proportional share um, for Auckland's size, do you think that council would change the people's relationship to it would be better understood, not just the things it does, but the the people who make the decisions that flow
0: down into those uh, areas. Yeah, I guess the thing with the press gallery is that is a recognition by media organisations that this is a thing of great importance and it needs to be resourced and each of them need to, you know, put resources in there to cover it well. Uh, I think in Auckland's case, particularly with the creation of Auckland Council now having this one mega council and the big agencies, and the ability to to really deal with with big problems, I think it still gets it is reasonably well resourced. You know, you've talked about people who are there, um, the the Herald being a, a daily newspaper, although most of its readership, I guess, is online. Still has that traditional focus on on big Auckland politics. Um, and for stuff even though we're now largely a, a digital website, I mean, I've been fortunate enough that they've they've left me to, you know, mess around in that patch, if you like. Uh, and and others will follow me in that. But I think probably more resources could go in there from media organizations, and I think we're entering a period where, there's quite a lot of big stuff that's going to happen that probably does need to be explored at least as closely as it is now if not more yeah
1: i mean you think about some of the the tensions and and the scale of the projects which which Auckland is approaching and you know the the numbers involved the number of people they impact are easily comparable to the the sort of Stories that come out of of Wellington, but you know, they, they, there isn't the same sort of volume of people. Therefore, that they, mm-hmm. you know, it, do you think that that important stories get missed? Do you see them sort of go by, and you think if we had a team rather than me, there would be we,
0: we'd be sort of on that, or that, you know? I think there are important stories that could do with more attention, and I think the city, you know, this is one I think that will come to the fore over the next year is the city's commitment to climate change action. And in a lot of respects, this is a turning point for Auckland Council, I guess, from its commencement in 2010 to where we are today. It's all been onward and upward. You know, there's been more done every year and it's moved, you know, moved ahead. And But now with the fiscal pressures that it faces... Uh, things are going to be cut. There's some really big decisions and tough decisions that are going to have to be made about what falls by the wayside and what goes ahead. Um, And I think climate change is at the risk of being, you know, climate action is at risk of being one of those things that will be put on the back burner, uh, which I think would be a a huge step backwards for the country and, and for the city. And I think how that debate unfolds through the deliberation on the council's 10-year budget over the next eight months, I think will be a major one. And I hope I hope people will engage with that and realise it's not about a bunch of councillors, but it's about really big decisions about their own futures and what their own Auckland will look like that are going to be decided.
1: Kia ora. Ko Duncan Greave, toko uh, I'm just taking a little break to talk to you about a big project that we've got coming next year. It's called What's Eating Aotearoa and it is going to be a very long running uh, exercise in 2024 where we look at kai, look at food and what what its role is in in our society in a really kind of broad and and multifaceted way. Uh, It's going to be Deep, like we, we're we're doing long form. We're spending a lot of time with this um, this stuff because it is so central to our lives. And this commodity, which you know the, this country makes so much of, has become really expensive. It's uh, it sort of really impacts people's lives. It's a it's a stressor. It's also a source of joy and culture. And we have always kind of published a bunch on food. Next year, we really want to. Um, make it a huge thread that runs throughout the year to do that uh, is going to cost us money um, and you know like there's a huge amount of resource that goes into a, a project at the scale that we're envisaging and as a result we're doing a pledge me drive it's the only the second one we've ever done in the first since 2016 and we're basically we're asking for money from our, our audience so if you're a member, you know, would would love it if you could, could give us a bit more. If you're not, this is a an awesome, awesome way to to sort of support the spin-off. Um, even if you can't do so regularly, maybe chip in here. The really cool thing is that it's not just a, you know, that you, you don't just give, you also get. There's a whole array of different kind of re- rewards on there, some of which are already sold out, uh, one of which is uh, as, a, as a podcast hosted by me, which can totally be like a corporate thing too. It's, it's kind of a bargain if you view it that way. So, if, you know, basically there's, there's a whole bunch of different rewards. They're really, really fun. They're extremely spinoff. Um, and, yeah, so if you go to the spinoff.co.nz forward slash pledge me, uh, you'll be able to kind of see what it is we're about and what you can get for your money. I think as of writing, we're roughly 60% of the way there. But, you know, to get that last push, because the whole way Pledge Me works is you either uh, get everything if you get to 50 grand or, or you get nothing if you don't. Um, so, you know, you're, if you're a regular consumer of the spin-off, you're probably sick of hearing about this, but we're going to keep talking about it because we are desperate to do this work. And as of right now, we aren't at that number. I know it's a really hard time, but... If you've been sort of wavering or thinking you'll get to it, please, uh, you know, run don't walk to to a digital device and and see if you can make a pledge to to support us to do this. So that's thespinoff.co.nz forward slash pledge me to help support what's eating our In in terms of stories you've covered, you know, during that that time on on the broader Auckland beat, can you pick a couple which sort of stand out in terms of really feeling? significant uh, in terms of their sort of scope or or, or dynamics?
0: Um, I know it's going to sound really nerdy, but I I think the amalgamation process which created Auckland Council in 2010 was, you know, for me was a a pretty important moment because there'd been, you know, there were the eight councils before (coughs) and some were doing really good things in their part of town, but they disagreed on stuff. The mayors, there were personality differences. There was a lot of... There was a lot of squabbling and indecision and court actions, particularly between the old city councils and the regional council. Uh, And I think the decision to create one single council, to give Auckland one unified voice and a scale that it can get on and and do big stuff that it couldn't previously agree on, felt like a moment where the city had really grown up uh, and that we weren't a bunch of politicians all trying to lobby the government for their view on things to prevail, so that you know, I think that's there are people who say it wasn't perfect and it wasn't perfect, and there are still things that aren't right with it. But I think that was a a really big historic moment for Auckland, and to see that happen and and what unfolded after that was you know quite a quite a big thing to be a part of. Um, at the <laughs> at the minor end of the scale, other big ones that came out of that, I guess, was. The um, the downfall of Len Brown, the, the revelation just after his re-election in 2013 that there'd been an extramarital affair with a, a council intern, that felt like kind of the end of the honeymoon period, if you like, for the council. There was a lot of, loss of trust, I think, around the council table. And a lot of big things did happen in that next term. You know, the creation of the unitary plan, the upzoning of of Auckland, but it felt like a bit of momentum went out of things. And really, Len Brown probably, as the inaugural mayor of Auckland, probably should have had another good term. I think there would have been, um, you know, he he was the one who basically negotiated the city rail link. He, he had... Um, uh, big ideas and big visions for Auckland and, and probably could have done another term.
1: It's interesting, right? Because that, that story, correct me if I'm wrong, came out of, was it Whale Oil? Like like it, it, it came from a a place which didn't exist, you know, uh, mm. probably ten, 10 years earlier. And I can't imagine that Lynn Brown's the first person to have an extramarital affair while in the mayor's office. Uh it would probably not have been considered news when you started your career, mm. or, uh, and yet it became such an enormous and destabilising event. What? What? How did? Do you think that that was sort of litigated in public? You know, what? What? What was your perception
0: of it? Um, I mean, you're right. It was it was brought to the fore by people who were looking for political gain, and and we're trying to get it out before election day on the on 2013 for an obvious outcome. Um, But it came out uh, just after the election. Uh, I mean, there were, you know, there were calls for, you know, Len Brown to resign. There was, you know, the front page of the New Zealand Herald was devoted to that call. Um, There were elements that I think that did warrant public scrutiny. There was the question about how, um, for for him and his own family, how, how... hotel rooms had been paid for, you know, when they'd been in town. There were, uh, Nothing particularly wrong was found there, but it, but it did prompt scrutiny that I think was appropriate at the time. Um, and there was awful, also an awful lot of scrutiny of the motivations of those uh, who brought it to the fore and seemed to be involved in, in trying to get the most out of it.
1: Yeah, which is probably appropriate too. So, yeah, mm. so in some respects, for, for, for a... For a it's a very strange story that seemed to be covered reasonably well. Um, another thing which is, or well, certainly there's a perception that the relationship between media and, and our elected representatives has changed and has sort of decayed, particularly in recent years. And we'll get to some sort of specific examples of that later on. But do, do, you, do you believe that's true?
0: I haven't encountered that really at at Auckland Council level. It may be something that happens at the higher levels of central government where there's a lot more media management and and a lot more gatekeepers to key players like cabinet ministers. Um, But despite the scale of Auckland Council, the councillors really are on their own in their relationships with the media. They don't have executive assistants. They don't have gatekeepers. They don't have their own media advisors. So... You can have a pretty straightforward and direct relationship with any of them if they choose to, and, and and my experience has really been that that you know they are all pretty open and straightforward people. You might not always agree with them, but but they're accessible in a way that that's really quite appropriate.
1: There's there's a theory around that that news reporting has got more opinion in it and that news reporters are more regularly venturing opinions, whether it's within publications or or on social media, and that that has sort of impacted some of the, the sort of levels of trust between elected representatives and media. Is, is that
0: something that you've observed or you, do you think that that has been an element that, that's risen in your time? I mean, there is a lot more opinion. In, in the news media, and and there's that sort of grey area. I, you, you know, there's, it's sort of semantics, really. Is it analysis yes. or is it opinion? And I write stuff every week, a, a column every week, which we now call analysis. Um, And, you know, I try to walk a line in that between an opinion and using it to highlight, you know, a particular direction that something may or may not be going in. Um, but there is a lot of pure opinion. You look through websites and newspapers. There are, You know, there are pages of opinion columns on things. And, you know, you can read them or not read them. I don't read most of them because there's still enough news stories to read. And really, if politicians want to read them, that's fine. Um, if they disagree with them, disagree with them. But, you know, it's I suppose it's only a media version of what people talk about in, in bars and, and things like that. So there, there is more of it. I don't know that it's displacing good news coverage really but you know it's there you know take it or leave it really
1: The Fold is brought to you by O-Media making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa with over 4,000 out of home advertising sites nationwide across both street furniture and retail centres I'm super grateful to O-Media for enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis Raising capital or taking your business to the world? I want to take a little detour uh, right now to to the trekker which is mm. a um, <laughs> I feel like an object of enduring fascination for you and also something that a bunch of people listening might might not even know what it is do you want to just t- t- tell tell me what the Trekker is and and why it's kind of it, you've you've been so fascinated by it
0: right so the trekker for me, started as a one-hour radio documentary a couple of decades ago and has now become uh, quite a big part of my private life. The Trekker was a motor vehicle that was designed and built in New Zealand in 1966, and its claim to fame is it's the only mass-produced motor vehicle that we designed and built in New Zealand. It wasn't a great thing. It looked kind of like an undernourished Land Rover, and it was built on... Skoda Mechanicals from what was then communist Czechoslovakia. The, the fascination for me, and I think it's interesting place in New Zealand history, is it? it's kind of the ultimate manifestation of the politics of New Zealand in the 1960s when the government controlled everything. The government regulated imports, the price of things, the motor industry particular because, you know, bringing in cars was a big consumer of overseas funds and the government wanted to make sure we didn't spend more than we earned and all that kind of thing. So new cars, you couldn't just buy them like you could now. You had to go on a waiting list. You, For a popular car, you might wait a year till you got to the top of the list. There were all sorts of side games if you had overseas funds um, and some cars you could sell a year later for more than you bought for them. So it was a very weird world for the motor industry. And through this... The ultimate manifestation of government policies, which were trying to encourage more and more New Zealand content in the cars that were built here—you know, upholstery, glass, paint, all that kind of thing—came uh, the trekker. Um, as the you know, it was the thing that made New Zealand a part of the car-building world for a few years, and you know, it faded away quickly once everything started to, to relax. But I just found it, a, you know, not just about cars, but it was a fascinating tale from a New Zealand that doesn't exist anymore. Um, and as life's gone on, it's taking on a new life now in Europe, in the Czech Republic where carmaker Skoda is based. They have discovered it as an interesting part of their history. So it's sort of a thing that, that started off as a bit of a joke, but... Um, There are more and more kind of slightly global elements to it, which fascinate me. Uh,
1: And so, so my first encounter with you and your work was on RNZ, uh, where you know you did this terrific reporting on often on morning reports. Here, there, it felt like most days, and there, it just you seemed to be absolutely in your element. what, you know,
0: what did you enjoy about your your time with RNZ? So I had 33 years at Radio New Zealand. I started in the regional newsroom, the sort of the Wellington newsroom to one side of of the big newsroom in Wellington, if you like, doing local body stuff there. And then uh, in the days when Radio New Zealand also had the commercial radio station arm, um, I was chief reporter in Tauranga, came to Auckland, In different ways over all those decades, Radio New Zealand was just, it was like the ultimate play sandpit really to play in. You could do anything. I got to do, uh, you know, local government politics. I got to do presenting. Had the opportunity to make radio documentaries of my choosing like the Trekker one, um, which turned into be something that sort of has stayed with me for the rest of my life. And it also had an amazing culture. It had a staff who kind of felt that they owned the place and they were there for the audience, um, which was a pretty good thing to be involved with. And there were people from the music department. So really, it ha- you know, it had everything that either in, just in journalism or in broadcasting uh, that you would want to be involved with. You know, I got to present a summer series called Summer Report for a few years, which was kind of, I suppose, my happiest place there because it was a programme that you could do anything in, from hard news to fun. Um. Yeah, and and I sort of imagined that I would spend the rest of my working days there, but didn't quite make it.
1: Uh, can you can you talk about that? Because I, I I think everyone listening thought that too, and then suddenly you weren't there, and you were, you're were at Stuff.
0: Yeah. Um. So five years ago, I got a call from someone at Stuff saying my name had come up in a conversation for a new job, and I said straight away, look, thanks very much, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a Radio New Zealand lifer, and, you know, um, put the phone down and started to think, well, at that stage, I was 60, and starting to think, hang on, how many opportunities are you going to get uh, if you had to to go somewhere else, still do the things that you're passionate about? Uh, with, without getting into the gory details, I had a new manager, uh, and change felt like it was in the air. So I had a conversation about the choice that I was thinking of making, stay or go. And the longer that conversation went on, the more I felt that the future might not be as happy as the past for me, if you like. And may have been okay. But at some point, you've got to make a call. And so I decided stuff, the the appeal with stuff in the end was it was making a big push to knock off the Herald uh, in the online news market in Auckland. Um, It was building a a kind of a big newsroom in a way that it hadn't had before with specialist reporters and rounds and all that sort of thing and it felt like a pretty exciting thing to come and get involved with and I thought I will box up my happy days uh, at RNZ and take all those happy memories with me, shed a few tears on the way out the door Um, but the appeal was to have a few years in this other form of journalism that I knew nothing about, which was the digital world.
1: And what did you, how did you find that transition? I I mean, I didn't realise it was such a long
0: time with with one organisation. It it was sort of hard and easy in that essentially you go, I I was going back to where I was at the start in the Auckland Star, it was the written word and, and quite short news stories and... You didn't have the opportunity to do all that creative stuff that you get to do in broadcasting, so the, I missed some of the that creative stuff for a while. But I also kind of relished just the the simplicity of taking a story and 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 structuring it in in simple plain English and print, if you like, and, and putting it out like that. You could actually get more done in a, in, in a way. Um, so it was sort of refreshing. And, and in terms of that
1: that team they built, it was there was a lot of very kind of credentialed journalists joined at, at that time. You know, how, how was the the you know that sort of building something new and, and having a crack at this the Royal New Zealand Herald, this this very powerful incumbent? You know, through that through those years.
0: Yeah. So the strategy uh, apparently paid off. I'm not an expert on how they measure things, but <clears throat> they got they got the audience that they were looking for in Auckland, uh, and I think it is it is still up there thanks to the the strength of the website a- as media changed over the years i think the environment i walked into started to change quite quickly when i went there there were still the community newspapers the western leaders the manukau courier each with their own office each with their own small teams of reporters which which provided a kind of a depth and a and a breadth of coverage that was unique in auckland um, and as, you know, the, the the financial screws starting to tighten, those sort of structures were wound back, those offices closed. Um, the papers are still there, but they're fed from a central pot. So I guess the, you know, the, the big thing that I walked into did contract a bit over the years, but really the job, the job remained the same and the appeal was the same, being able to do the America's Cup, which was a passion of mine on on the side whenever it came round, and and Auckland politics and issues and transport and so on, that remained the same right through.
1: I mean, I'm sure that's true, but it must have changed dynamically somewhat with the arrival of a particular main character, uh, and that's Wayne Brown as as mayor, who had, I mean, I, I appreciate what you said earlier about the relationship between our elected representatives and reporters, but... Sure, surely you, you must concede that he's got a particularly specific one, especially with uh, yourself and Simon Wilson.
0: Yeah. it's It's been interesting for me after 45 years as a journalist, as I was then with the election of Wayne Brown, I've basically had a year where I've kind of had to relearn everything that I knew and did about dealing with politicians. Um. I followed Wayne Brown on the election trail. He was solidly elected in the same kind of numbers that Phil Goff was before him. It's a fact he doesn't like to hear, that the same number of people voted for him as for Phil Goff. Um, But he came into the job. He had a brilliant campaign. You know, he had really top-flight campaign strategists. They picked the right messages. They hit the buttons and it's broken. I'll fix it. said all the right things and, and swept into power uh i uh, following him on the trail it was pretty obvious that aside from the 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 merit of his campaign that he as an individual didn't really have a good grasp of what was really going on inside the council and not a good grasp of how he as mayor could deal with some of those issues and so i was fascinated when he was elected that was actually the point where i was probably thinking of resigning anyway it seemed like a nice tidy, tidy moment, new council, turn 65, get your pension, off you go, someone else picks it up. But I was fascinated to try and see how somebody like that operated as mayor of Auckland. As it turned out, uh, we had no relationship at all, pretty much, from the day he was elected. Uh, I got to cross paths with him occasionally at a council meeting, but it was a year before I got a sit down interview with him. And he clearly doesn't have a lot of time for me, I guess because I've been critical. His office tells me that through whatever monitoring they do, I'm by far the most negative journalist on matters to do with Wayne Brown, Um, which, I don't know, should you worry about that or is it a badge of honour? I don't know. Um, So it's really been interesting trying to – the mayor is a very important figure, um, but trying to work out a way of covering the issues in Auckland without access to the mayor And part of that is realising that actually what happens in Auckland is not what the mayor says. It's the majority of the councillors who decide something. So it's been a fascinating year uh, having an almost hostile relationship with the mayor's office for the first time ever um, and still trying to cover big stuff that's going on in Auckland around that.
1: Do do you – there's a – thesis that's kind of gone round a bit that was sort of exemplified in the recent Metro cover story you know which asked the question as well Wayne Brown gone woke uh obviously having some fun with it um because I don't think that's ever <laughs> he's not going to get convicted of that in any court of law but um do you th- do you buy this uh, this the the idea that he has been a more interesting and complex mayor than the guy who campaigned in terms of his political uh, choices, uh, if not his behaviour. Yeah.
0: yeah, so what's been interesting to watch is he came in with these fixed positions on pretty much everything. He puts a lot of value in his own knowledge, his own experience and the, the merit of his views on things. He came in... All of the directors of all of the council agencies were going to be gone within weeks. He was going to get rid of them all. Um, He was going to have the vehicle trade off the city ports within two years and the port gone a short time, you know, a a decade after that. He came in with really big ideas that were never going to happen. Uh, I think initially he aligned himself or some councillors aligned themselves with him and I think... What's been interesting to watch is over a period of that year, he's learned a lot. He's learned which councillors can actually make things happen, which councillors have solutions to problems rather than just talking about the problems. Uh, all of these agencies that he was going to defund and get rid of the directors, he has from contact with them and actually learning about what they do, uh, come to speak quite highly of them and, and getting on well with with the the chairman or the chairpeople of the boards of those agencies. So to his credit, he has adapted and he has realised that a lot of these things aren't as he saw them, aren't as simple as he saw them, uh, and are going to take a lot more work to happen. And and he is tackling big things like trying to get a city deal with Auckland and big structural stuff, which is all commendable. um, But I think he's he's still not nailed learning how to build a consensus easily around the council table. I think he's making that harder for himself than it should be.
1: As we came in, you, you talked about the fact that uh, his office sort of seemingly habitually briefs the Herald before they, they brief stuff. And that, that seems to be the sort of emerging trend that, you know, and we've seen Winston Peters this week making some fairly extraordinary statements about media bribery and, and referring to the media almost as the opposition in a, um, in a particular way. Wayne Brown doesn't do that precisely, but he does some pretty, some stuff that we wouldn't have expected from the office uh, prior to that. How damaging are these kind of norm-breaking behaviours, uh, do you think?
0: Look, I mean I, I don't know whether it's hard to quantify with Wayne whether it's damaging or not. I mean, it's it's certainly not new in politics that a politician or a party will favor one media outlet over another, either either because one outlet is seen to be more tuned in to the voter base that the politician is trying to get to or it could be because they just want to snub the other one for whatever reason. The risk with that always, and it's not unique to Wayne Brown or necessarily to politics, if you're giving one media organisation the jump on all the others, all the others kind of get their noses out of joint. So it doesn't, you know, the the gain that you get on one, are you losing it by, you know, upsetting the others and perhaps getting more negative coverage from the others than you would get? Um, and look, to be fair, in, in earlier terms, I've probably had a relationship that's allowed me to get... To jump on some things, so you know what goes around comes around. Um, I'm now not the favoured one. Uh, you have to work a lot harder to catch up or to try and be there at the same time via a different route. You know, it's I don't know that I don't know that the public really want to be worrying about that. You know, which media company is getting ahead of the other one and who's got the better relationship? We all manage to get the stories out. Um, you know, you just have to to live with what what you're dealt.
1: Fair enough. So today is is literally your, your final day in the job. Um, I spoke to your you know, colleague at the Herald, Simon Wilson, uh, who, who was at the, the the last council meeting you attended. Apparently the tributes flowed, not from Wayne, but uh, but from most of the rest of them. Uh, you know, how do you feel at the moment? How did you feel hearing that? And, and what will you sort of miss, do you think, about all this?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's quite, it, uh, it was quite unsettling, I guess, to sit at a council meeting where you've always been in the gallery, you've been watching the show, and you take away and report what you want f- from it. To be hearing from people around that table, their thoughts on, you know, what you might have done over the years or a particular story. So that was, that was an unusual experience. Um it was uh, interesting watching the mayor's reaction to those those, <laughs> those comments being made. Uh, I mean, at one point, uh, I think Desley Simpson said something about she would hold a comment until it was after question time or something. And, and Wayne, in his inimitable style, said, Oh, hell, you yeah. uh, know, half the questions seem to be about some reporter who's leaving, um, which provided this me with some generous amusement. Guy. Yeah. But I mean, that's, you know, that's just the way he talks. I didn't take that particularly one way or the other. Yeah, I mean, I guess everybody, whether they're a journalist or a, a teacher or someone who makes coffee for people in a cafe, likes to think that what they do is is adding somehow to the the world or people's lives around them. So, you know, if somebody says that from time to time, I guess it, you know, helps you think that some of it is worthwhile for somebody. <laughs> Well, wow,
1: you're really pouring it on. <laughs> in typical Todd Nile style. Um, well, look, I, I uh I think it's been so great to have you up here and I know, you know, I speak for my, my colleagues and, and the industry more broadly, you know, in, in terms of the contribution you've made has been pretty amazing on a on a beat. That hasn't always been easy or, or given the sort of resourcing it it's deserved but um, yeah an amazing career and thank you so much for coming on The Fold to talk
0: about it Thanks Duncan and May the spin-off keep doing the great job that it does Thank you
1: That was The Fold brought to you by our partners at O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa Huge thanks to O Media for sponsoring this episode of The Fold and enabling us to make unmissable connections
0: with Kiwis. Kia ora e tewi, he Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our Mahi by signing up to become a Spin Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate.